2: this is wheel bearings i'm dan roth and i'm sam abu so welcome to episode 35 uh we got uh the hespin rally that you went to we've got uh, a couple of intrigue story well one intrigue story and then um the future of the internal combustion engine according to mazda to cover so we'll get to that but first uh we'll talk about what we've been driving and sam you're driving this week the car that i was driving last week. not the exact car but
3: but the the same kind yeah yes back back in yet another miata uh one more turn in the uh, uh miata rf or mx5 miata rf or whatever it's actually supposed to be called now um the uh the heart retractable hardtop miata uh this time last time i had the club version which is the entry-level version of the rf and this time uh like you had last week i had the uh the grand touring um or yes grand touring grand
2: tour, yeah i can whatever they want to call it yeah the grand something the, or other
3: yes <laughs> grand touring um and um Still, still love it. Um, you know, still a still a Miata. Still has all the great things about a Miata. Um, still, run, you know, it's quick. Um, you know, rides great, handles great. Uh, it's a hoot to drive. Um, I'd still, you know, I still prefer the soft top, but you know, I I would not turn my turn my nose up at one of these either.
2: Yeah, I really, um, I I was intrigued by how sort of tractable and flexible and just well-rounded it is given that it's you know it's a small light car with a small engine and um it, it just it seems very well well thought out and i guess that's what happens after you spend 25 25 27 27 years oh my goodness uh, <laughs> yeah re- refining the
3: same basic concept yeah uh, hey which, i mean it it, it's worked for Porsche on the nine eleven, so
2: that's you know. true. That's I, you know I didn't think of it that way. Um, yeah, if they've could, been
3: doing it for more than fifty years.
2: Yeah, and there's there's nothing about a current nine eleven that's really analogous to the original, other than sort of this the basic layout.
3: Still has a you know a boxer six you know hanging out behind the rear axle and you know a a semi recognizable shape
2: that's true round headlights round roundish yes back back back
3: back back to roundish headlights Yeah. after after that uh um period in the late 90s uh which we will uh, not discuss well well, that's uh,
2: that's the way you can get uh, like that those are the last inexpensive modern 911s are that's true the 996
3: yes i I believe so. so
2: Yeah. Uh, And they're going up in price fast because everybody who wants a car that drives well and can stomach the fact that it shares a nose with the Boxster, it's (laughs) like they're still good cars, you know? Yeah. Um,
3: Hey, I mean, from the driver's seat, you can't tell what nose is on
2: there. Yeah, exactly. So who cares? Uh, but back to the Miata, yes, <laughs> <laughs> so how does this differ from the the club? Um, is it softer or just it has more features? It's, I know it has leather and it, stuff like that
3: yeah i mean it it's it 's a wee bit softer um you know the the club that I had had the Brembo brake package uh, you know so the the, the um, braking's not quite as aggressive as the the club was um, you know the the uh, wheels, you know, different set of wheels. It's got uh nice leather seats in there. Um, you know, other than that, you know, it's actually not all that different. Um, you know, it's got the, the club I had, you know, had most of the options on there. It had the navigation system and everything anyway. Um, as far as, you know, driver assist features it, you know, it's fairly minimal. Uh, this one does have a, uh, a lane departure warning system, but, you know, I have it turned off. Just because it's too annoying, and um, the blind spot monitoring, uh, which actually on the RF, the you know the blind spot monitoring is a little more useful on the RF because the the visibility over your shoulders is not quite as good as on the the soft top. You know, with the soft top you know, you look over your shoulder and, you know, at least when the top's down, which is the way it, it should yeah, it be should, always right. be, should be at <laughs> all times. Um, with the top down, you know, you look over your shoulder and you can see everything there, there is effectively no blind spots. Um, with the RF, those flying buttresses you know with even with the the top retracted um, you know give you a pretty decent sized blind spot over your shoulders and so the blind spot assist the blind spot monitoring definitely is a is a help there but other than that it's it's really not you know it's not dramatically different and and that's just fine because there is absolutely nothing wrong with with the other version either so
2: I mean if you're the kind of person though that wants all those driver assist features. Do you really belong in a Miata? Absolutely not. <laughs> like, there's, yeah. there's very I mean, few but, vehicles that are more like about said, driving.
3: Yeah, I mean, they, really, they, like I said, the only the only driver assist feature I would really want in this car is, is that blind spot monitoring, and only because you know the the RF does have the you know does have blind spots. The soft top, I wouldn't even bother with the blind spot monitors. You know, you don't you really don't need anything. Just just drive it. Yeah. That's what it's meant for. Just drive, you know. Pay pay attention, and you know, put put your phone down. Pay attention, you know. Don't you know? Don't even think about buying an automatic. Buy a manual only, um, and and do what you're supposed to do in a proper sports car, so, which is what exactly what this is.
2: Yeah, and I haven't driven the new Miata with an automatic, but I was actually really surprised um, when I drove the old power retractable hardtop uh, of the last generation. Uh, with a, an automatic, I thought I was just going to despise it for a week. And I actually really, I liked it. Uh, it still was fun. It, it's a little different cause you're not, you know, shifting your own gears. So maybe a little less engaging, but it was no less enjoyable. It was just different.
3: Yeah. And that, you know, that's fine. You know, I mean, if, if you're, I guess, you know, if you, if you do a lot of driving and traffic, you know, it the the clutch, you know, the clutch pedal is pretty light anyway in a Miata, so it's you know, it's not like it's terribly difficult or painful. Um, you know, I mean, it's only a four-cylinder engine, so it's not like you need a big, heavy clutch in that thing. Uh, but if you're you know, if you do you know have to commute in traffic on a regular basis you may want to go for the automatic or if you just don't like shifting but you know then again, <laughs> again if you don't though, like, like shifting like, what's any, the you, with you? yeah, yeah. <laughs> what's wrong with you and why are you driving a miata anyway
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh so uh also one of my colleagues shared the uh have you seen the head to head video the motor trend um head to head where they compared um, the Miata RF and the Toyota 86? No, I have not seen that one yet. It was actually, you know, it, so it's, it's, it was Johnny Lieberman and Jason Kamisa. And sometimes Johnny and I don't see eye to eye on things, too. You don't uh, say. Put yeah, Right. To put it um, <laughs> mildly. Uh, but I like their impressions were pretty accurate. And they had Randy Pobst um, bring them out on the, the track as well. Uh, and it was really interesting to see the two cars back to back like that. Uh, and, uh, you know, having spent time in both of those cars and just, you know, being able to relate very directly to what they were all talking about. Um, first of all, they really criticized the Miata styling, which I don't necessarily agree with. I think it's actually a really good looking car. They the idea, I guess, is that with this generation, the taillights are a little too close together. it looks a little funky it 's a riot of kind of lines and and curves and whatever uh where Where do you come down in terms of styling
3: when I first saw it when I first unveiled it in late twenty fifteen um, I was less enamored with the with the look, but over time it has grown on me, and you know now i I love it. You know, I, I still prefer mine. You know, I still yeah. prefer the 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 first the first two generations, the NA and the and and also the NB, which had um, integrated headlights. It didn't have the pop ups, um, but. Uh, you know, th- this has grown on me a lot, and I I like it. I you know I think it's I think it's a great design. Um, you know, it, it incorporates you know some elements of Mazda's you know contemporary design language, um, but you know I mean it still has the perfect proportions for for a roadster. You know, it's it's exactly what it should be, um, and. You know, there, there's only, you know, there's only so much you can do to screw that up. Um, so, you know, and, and I I don't think they did screw it up. I think they did. a I think they did a really great job. And it's it's given it a, you know, a look that's really unique. Um, you know, there's there's nothing else quite like it on the road. And, and I I think it works well.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'll agree, too. I think when I first saw it, I was like, ooh. Ooh, those headlights, but, uh, you know, otherwise it has, and we, I talked about this last week, how there's, there's sort of some Easter eggs in the design. The more you, and good design is like that. The more you look at it, uh, you know, it appears on its surface to be simple or, you know, it appears at first glance that you've got all there is. And then the more you look at it, the more you discover, um, that's actually really hard to do. And, and I, I feel like they, they pulled that off quite a bit with the, the latest, uh, Miata, but, uh, yeah, I was actually looking at the NCs as well, the previous generation. And that's, there's a lot more character in the new car than there was in the, the outgoing one. The outgoing one was sort of just like oval and soft-edged.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I think, uh, like I said, I, I, would, I would not be opposed to having one of these in my garage on a full-time basis.
2: It's the only thing standing between you and that car is the payment. You should be able to do that. Just you know, set your go in. They're gonna ask you what you want to pay per month, and you're gonna tell them that you want to pay thirty dollars, and you'll finance <laughs> for, for forty years.
3: For, for long longer than the mortgage on my house.
2: Yeah, that's fine. Yeah.
3: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, maybe maybe in a few years, you know, I'll I'll get a, a used one of these to to go along with my my uh, first generation one.
2: Yeah, I mean that's gonna be the nice thing too. Is even at, you know. It's such an affordable car to begin with, as it rides the depreciation curve, it's gonna just become that much more attainable
3: yeah, absolutely a good one, so all right, so what about you? what are you driving
2: uh i so I kind of have to apologize to this car because I'm coming off a week with the Miata, which is you know all about steering feel and and driving um being connected to the vehicle, so I got a Ford edge sport um it's a dynamic mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's so clumsy um and it's it looks great it's just, actually it's a really nice shade of like maroon um it's got the the, the edge sport has the blacked out grille and the darker wheels So it's it's handsome uh, especially with the new design language that ford put on the edge uh, and it's it's a pretty solid vehicle you know it's it's old hardware at this point uh, i think it's it's actually pushing 10 years old um uh not
3: really no because it's um it's built on the the new um cd platform so it I, shares its platform with the uh, fusion and mondale
2: i didn't realize it had gotten updated i thought it had just gotten restyled
3: no no they they moved it over to the new platform i mean the old platform is more than 10 years old cuz you know it actually It has its roots in an older Mazda platform,
2: right? That well, it was, and that the first gen Edge came out in what, two thousand five. It was, it was the first gen Fusion, essentially. Uh, yes. Which was like a six two (laughs) six, yeah.
3: Yeah, (laughs) it's it was derived from an old Mazda platform, which you know was not not a bad thing. You know, nothing wrong with that. Uh, But you know, it's it's a. It's an architecture that had been around for a while. So this one, this one is all updated. It's it's based on the current generation Fusion and Mondeo and MKZ platform. Um, you know, so it's got the same suspension architecture as those vehicles. Um, you know, it's it's lighter than the previous Edge was, but it's but not it's light. still it's still yeah it's not it's not light.
2: It's it, it does it's solid. It goes down the road solid. And that's what I was gonna say is it's it. You know, I was impressed with that because I thought it was older than it actually is. But even so, um, it, it feels, you know, really nice and tight. Uh, so but why do you say it's a dynamic mess? Well, because the steering is just numb and uh, you don't know what's going on with the tires. And, uh, you know, again, some of this might be that I just came off a week with a car where I knew exactly what was going on with the tires. So I, I don't know. But I find that uh inside you even the, the the controls like the infotainment or the secondary controls they require a glance to operate and in the course of that glance the thing's wandering you know and it's got uh the lane departure thing that'll like put thumps in the in the wheel to warn you when it detects that you're drifting out of your lane uh-huh. i just find that anytime i i look away even for a second it starts to just just drift and you can't really feel it or anything. So I don't know whether it's because it has, you know, the particular implementation of uh, electric power steering that Ford has used where you just, you don't have that indication of like, it's pulling off the, you know, the crown or something like that. um, Which is one of the things that Ford mitigates with their, their electronic power steering. Uh,
3: Most, most, most companies are doing that now putting in um, automatic power pull or yeah pull drift compensation yeah. uh, to compensate for the road crown so as you, you know as you're driving down the road you know all, all roads have a you know a bit of a crown to them they they drop off towards the sides mm-hmm. to help water drain off when it rains and uh, and so, you know, what uh, manufacturers Ford I think was the first to do it, but uh, most manufacturers are doing it now. Is that this pull drift compensation? So it uses the sensors for the stability control um, and the you know the steering angle to detect when you're on a crown, and you know the the electric power steering actually does a little bit of adjustment to the steering angle so that as you're going down the road, it you know it. Will automatically compensate so you know basically as, as you drive down a road on a car- crowned road it'll the car will still go straight
2: yeah uh i found that for whatever reason it wound up drifting so maybe it's, maybe it's me uh i don't know but it, it just i f- i find it doing that a lot i find that i'm doing a lot of mid-corner corrections you know on, on sweeping turns um because i i can't really figure out what what the level of grip in the steering angle should be um so I, and that's i don't want to say that that's just because i spent a week in the miata it's 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 because it's, I, it's, I, I th-
3: that's odd because when, when i you know i drove an edge sport about a year ago and i did not really experience that you know I, I wonder if maybe there's an alignment issue with the one you're driving
2: uh maybe i if if you didn't feel it in the one that you drove though it's probably just me yeah, uh, <laughs> well, it's you also know, you know it's got those big wheels and it the it ride yeah. is like a little harsh too.
3: Right, and stuff. and you know all of all of that does tend to amplify any you know you know big wheels you know tends to amplify any kinds of issues like that. Um, the other thing that's that's in there that I I'm, I don't think was actually you know that's, was in there in the one that I drove, but but I think is in there now is um, the uh, active uh, Uh, adaptive steering ratio.
2: Oh, hmm.
3: So, you know, they've got a a system like in the steering wheel hub, like behind the airbag, there's actually um, a little uh, electric motor and actuator uh, and a a planetary gear that uh, effectively changes the, um, the steering ratio dynamically so that at higher speeds, Uh, you know it slows it down so that you know so you have less tendency for the vehicle to wander at highway speeds but then at lower speeds it it um speeds up the ratio so that you can get a little bit tighter turning angle uh when you're maneuvering around in parking lots and things like that
2: huh that's a very good idea i just maybe that's what's driving me crazy i don't know i i just felt like it doesn't lock on to straight ahead like it should. You know, uh, it it needs a bit of correction on a constant basis. And so, you know, again, it's probably just me.
3: Yeah, you're um, probably just being too persnickety.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, it's pretty lovely. You know, I mean, it, like I said, it looks good. The sport is nicely appointed inside. The seats are very comfortable. Uh, the space is pretty decent. Uh, Sink 3 is... Mm, sync 3. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's 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 not my ford touch. Right? It's better. Um I you know, I'm surprised at how slow it feels now cuz the first time I tried sync 3 I was like, wow, this is snappy. Uh and that was just a couple of years ago. And now it's it's f- starting to feel like the system is pokey uh to do stuff. Um yeah. And I, I, so that was actually one of the things that stuck out to me was like when you tune the radio, it, it, it's like, it gets occupied trying to play like a little animation when you like, you tune up to, to whatever frequency and then it wants to do something else. And so if you pause for a minute and then tune again, it like, it lags because it, it's like trying to play the little animation because it thinks you're done. And then, Oh no, nope, I want to actually give it another command. And, and so there's that lag time. Uh, and I, I can't believe that somebody at Ford thought it was a good idea to put an animation in the gauge cluster uh, because they've got the two LCDs that flank the the gauges. Um, Mm -hmm. The right hand one, if you set it to display the radio, it will continue to to flip and uh, show you like the RDS stuff and there's no way to shut that off. So as you're driving, you've got this text that changes in your periphery. So it's distracting you. There,
3: there actually is a way to shut that off.
2: I couldn't find it. It, it drove me crazy. I've switched to the company. No, no, no. It, <laughs> <laughs> it,
3: what you do is you plug in your phone and you use Android Auto or Apple CarPlay, and then you'll never see that again. <laughs> and and then, And you also won't have to listen to the radio. Uh, Why would you want to do that?
2: Well, we have a very good public radio station here that I listen to during my commute. We actually have several, um, so there's that.
3: And well, if there, I, I mean, you can listen to the NPR One app through <laughs> um, through Android <laughs> my Auto. My
2: phone doesn't support Android Auto. Uh, oh, so there's that. But that's, okay. a, that's a good point. It's a fine point. Um, <laughs> I switched it to the compass uh, because who doesn't need a compass when you're driving? it's it's pointless but at least it doesn't animate um no it's it's a decent uh vehicle i think all of the reasons why i didn't buy an edge uh are sort of backed up by this just you know, dynamically it's not it's not pleasing um to me it's not it's not horrible but it, it just it doesn't ring my bell um and i also like there's a lot of dashboard there's a lot of a pillar there's you know visibility wasn't exactly what i you know wish it would be that's it's not that's not just the edge so that's a lot of cars and and uh it does just to make me feel like the space efficiency isn't as good as it it could be for its physical size but again you know being nitpicky i think is the order of the day today so
3: no but i mean that actually is a very valid point that you know it and it's a common problem to a lot of modern cars um you know with you know thick a pillars high belt lines Um, you know, and it, it degrades your visibility, degrades your ability to see out of the car and see, see what's around you. Yeah. So you actually do become, you know, a lot more dependent on all of these driver assist features, you know, cameras and everything else to see what's around you, because you can't just, you can't just look around and and see anything there. Um, and I think that that's, that's actually a, you know, that's a real problem. Um, you know i i i prefer i i like to be able to actually just look around and see you know certainly i think you know um you know backup cameras are are very valuable you know to to show you what's immediately behind the car because you know even even in older cars with you know that have nice slim pillars you know all around you know there's still going to be things that you're not going to be able to see um you know from the driver's seat so you know it that is a handy feature but you know, especially the A pillars. You know, on a lot of modern cars are very problematic, and uh, you know, the the current generation, you know, current generation of a lot of the Ford products do have pretty thick A pillars. They're they're not as bad as you know some of the previous generation gm vehicles uh, the current generation gm vehicles are, have gotten much better at that you know honda's always been pretty good at, at trying to keep their pillars pretty slim and, and optimizing visibility but um you know and and part of it also you know is the fact that you know it's a utility you know so you're sitting up higher you know and the, the body is more you know enclosed all around you so um you know that's that's uh, you know, as we get to automated vehicles, you know obviously that problem goes away, but you know, as long as we still have to drive i think it's it's important that we need, we should be able to see out of the vehicle without having to rely on the cameras
2: yeah that's a that 's an issue for the automakers though they have to wrestle with that because I think that given their druthers they 'd also want to make it so that or at least a certain faction within the automaker would also want to make it so that visibility is really good but there is apparently a psychological sense of security that comes from being cocooned with the the door sills up to your earlobes and stuff for a lot of people um I tend to not agree with that idea, but I can understand where it comes from uh it's a it, uh, you know it,
3: i think it's a it's a false sense of security um you know it, because i, th- I think I think I have. I think you have more security when you can actually see what's around you.
2: Oh yeah, I agree, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, on,
3: on the other hand, you know, I mean, part of, I mean, there's two factors driving, you know, the, you know, this lack of visibility problem. One, you know, is design trends. You know, um, you know, and the higher belt lines are partly, you know, a modern design trend, uh, but. You know the other factor of course is crash safety requirements you know crash safety requirements keep getting tougher and tougher you know occupant protection standards uh, and you know especially you know as we add things like side impact tests and and roof crush standards all of that tends to drive having more sheet metal in in various places and that sh- that extra sheet metal you know tends to degrade your visibility so it's it's a trade-off um, you you're getting some degree of security from that you know but there's also you know the i think the psychological part of it is not necessarily warranted
2: no it just goes back to people are wrong and they should listen to us because we're not <laughs> um but that's never going to happen you know the the loveliest part of the edge sport is the 2.7 liter eco v6 that that's, that is
3: a that is a
2: marvelous engine it's great uh, it actually has a good throaty rumble when you when you stomp on it. Uh, it's plenty powerful. You know, the first Edge I drove years ago, uh, and it, I think it was an Edge Sport. Man, it did feel wimpy and overworked. But this does not have a problem, and its engine is a f- almost a full liter smaller in displacement than that one was.
3: Right. Well, yeah. That was, you know, that was a 3.7 liter naturally aspirated V6, and I think, you know, it did about 300 horsepower. But um, you're right; it definitely didn't. It definitely did not feel as strong as this engine by any stretch of the imagination. And you know, this is this is the same engine, the 2.7 liter. It's uh, what Ford calls their uh, their Nano V6. Um, so you know, it debuted in the F one hundred and fifty, in you know, the twenty fourteen F one um, hundred and fifty, and then they later added it to the uh, to the Edge, and, and it's also in the, uh, the Fusion Sport now. And then there is a three liter version of the same engine that is used by it's exclusively used by Lincoln, which has four hundred horsepower. And you know, I mean, it's in either form, you know, it's a it's a marvelous engine.
2: Yeah, that's the high point of the Edge Sport. I wanted that engine in the Mustang or they can send one to me. I'll put it in the lawnmower (laughs) or the crown Victoria, uh, or whatever. (laughs) It's nice. I'm impressed with it. I'm very impressed with it. Um, so anyway, uh, that's enough about the edge. And I think we've exhausted our Miata quotient for a while too. Uh, so we should talk about stuff. Um, you know, it, Probably makes sense to you attended the Hespin rally, uh, we, you know. We talked that up, uh, I guess, for a couple of weeks um, at the end of of the last couple of podcasts, just you know about the event and uh, exhorting people to get to get down there uh, and and participate. How how was it? How did it go?
3: it was great um i think you know we had about uh about 30 people uh that showed up which was fantastic uh we had a, an amazing variety of cars uh, you know patrick's uh, wife gina and his sister uh, chrissy drove in uh, patrick's yellow vw corrado um which is you know, his favorite car um the uh, You know, we had, uh, besides mine, there was one other uh, Miata, a red one, which also used to be Patrick's, uh, and he sold that one a few, a couple of years before he died. Um, There was, uh, let's see, a Corvette Z06. Mike Austin, uh, ex of uh, Autoblog, uh, brought his uh, his Alfa Romeo Spider, uh, which sands top. And fortunately, the rain held off <laughs> since since the car literally has no top on it right now, no top installed. Uh, let's see what else we had. GT three fifty. Richard Truitt bought his Honda S two thousand, and uh, Matt Lever from Ford managed to. Uh, get um, to, to borrow uh, a GT from the uh, the engineering team at Ford. Uh, he went and picked it up on Sunday morning just before the rally and had to return it immediately afterwards. But he, <laughs> he did get to drive around in it for a couple hours, so which do, uh, was do they- great.
2: Do they just have a, a GT sitting around the engineering department for like you know, qu- air, making air quotes here for for research? You know, like
3: yeah, of course, yeah, no. Um, I mean, you know, the the car just you know, re- you know went into production a few months ago, um, and you know, there's ongoing work on the program. You know, they're they're looking at you know what uh, what kinds of improvements to make, and yeah, you know, I mean, this was a prototype. It was uh, it was not you know it's not a, a production spec car, so they can't sell it. But, um, you know, so they, you know, they, they do tend to keep these around. I mean, you know, they're still, you know, floating around, um, the, uh, the proving grounds, there's still, you know, previous, a couple of previous generation GTs. You know, one of the things when you, if you spend any time around an automaker, you will find all kinds of interesting cars that, um, have been saved from the crusher. You know, I mean, most, most prototypes, uh, you know after development is done you know they end up you know they they by the time development is finished and the cars in production most prototypes are in pretty rough shape even though they may only have 15 or 20,000 miles on them they tend to be 15 or 20,000 really hard miles well and they're their
2: prototypes too they're not right, and they're, they're not production cars
3: yeah they're you know i mean they're even more hand built you know than than a you know than a production Ford gt uh, and but you know they they'll keep them around you know because they they'll go back and revisit them um they may you know use them at later times to try out some new components uh like for example um the uh, the GT350 uh when they started work on that program uh, some years ago um back well go, let me go back to like 2005 when I was still working in engineering, um, at that time uh, when they were working on what would eventually be the, the GT 500 that debuted in 2007, um, that program, which was internally codenamed Condor, uh, they originally had planned to use an independent rear suspension on that car. And, uh, what happened was they actually built two prototypes, and you know we had one of them in the garage at the at the company uh, where I worked at the time, and um, it, it uh, uh, the early development the, the first two prototypes had the independent rear suspension on them, and they found that it was. The the car was just too heavy. Between you know, I don't know if you remember back then those GT five hundreds, those first GT five hundreds had a cast iron, oh yeah, uh, five point four liter oh. supercharged V eight. Yeah,
2: they were a pig.
3: Yeah, so it it was heavy, you know, and then you add another 120 pounds or so for the independent rear suspension. The car was just way overweight. And so they, they ended up canceling the independent rear suspension for that program and going back to a solid rear axle. Um, and those, those – um, at least one of those cars uh, was – Uh, Was saved with the independent rear suspension and it was, it stuck around and it actually ended up becoming uh, an early development mule for the GT350 program. You know, so it got used for some of the early work that they were doing on that program uh, before they, you know, they had actual proper prototypes. Uh, So there, you know, there's all kinds of. You know, interesting stuff that's floating around that, you know, gets repurposed for other other programs later on. Um, you know, some some of them, you know, just get preserved because they're historically interesting and eventually they may end up in a museum somewhere um, and some just get stashed away because, you know, some, you know, some engineer didn't <laughs> didn't want it to get crushed. Yeah. Somebody uh, takes so. a
2: shine to it.
3: Yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, one one more you know story, you know, going back to the beginning of my engineering career, back in the early '90s when I was working at the uh, GM proving grounds in Milford, um, there was uh, you know a parking lot, um, a storage lot uh, in the uh, on the proving grounds, uh, off in a far corner, in the middle of uh, what is now the uh, the Lutz Ring, the the uh, uh, the high speed test track that they have there. And back in those days, you know, they just there were, you know, probably a couple of hundred various prototypes, you know, that once the engineers were done with them, they would just go park them back there. And, you know, sometimes they would stay back there for years and eventually some of them would get hauled off to the crusher and, you know, others, you know, who knows what happened to them. But I remember, uh, you know, there were a whole bunch of there was probably about 20 uh, C4 Corvettes uh, that had full active suspension systems. This was when GM still owned Lotus and they were still trying to do, um, you know, the full hydraulic active suspension system. And, you know, they, they had, yeah, there was probably about 20 of those, these, these black C4 Corvettes, um, with the, with the active suspension. Um, and you know, part of why they never put that into production was because the system just required way too much power. I mean, it was drawing like 40 horsepower off of the engine just (laughs) to power the hydraulics
2: yeah i'm assuming too it's hydraulics it's heavy it's a a weight penalty as well so
3: oh yeah so you know the but you know those those cars stuck around for quite a while after they were done doing testing with them so that's just the way it is
2: yeah i that's the that's the real interesting stuff is the the weird things that uh not even just like development meals just just weird stuff you could you could make if you were determined enough you know with with all that parts been sort of at your disposal you know it's it's probably a lot easier to say i'm going to pick and choose from from over here and over there and we're going to assemble it in this body shell and uh, i i don't know that's the, I yeah, think well i
3: mean for, for for any new vehicle development program you know the first stage of, of testing you know is using you know what are commonly referred to as mules you know i mean a, a mule you know is a cross between a horse and a donkey, <laughs> and you know i mean that's literally what you know what these early development prototypes are is you know they'll take an existing vehicle and they'll start putting some new parts on it to test those out you know bef- you know long before they they get to the stage of having, you know, regular you know, prototypes that are representative of the, the look, you know, that have all the systems of the new vehicle. You know, they'll test individual components and systems on an existing vehicle. So, you know, if, especially you know, around this area, if, you're, if you live around southeast Michigan, you will frequently see some odd-looking vehicles that look vaguely familiar, but yet somehow slightly different. You know, so you know, early Mustang, you know, development cars. You know, for the current generation Mustang, were based on the S197. You know, and they, you know, if you if you look, you can see, you know, they there were all kinds of early spy photos. You would see the, you know, cut up rear faces, and you know, sometimes if somebody managed to get close enough to one, you could see the independent rear suspension under there. You know, and various other bits that were changed. Uh, but you know that's that's the nature of the business
2: yeah i think that's why uh a lot of enthusiasts or a lot of a lot of folks think it would be a really fascinating job to to be an engineer and to to uh to sort of work in that um and i'm sure that it's not as as cool as it seems on a daily basis but still it depends
3: what you're working at yeah I mean, you know, if you're working on the Ford GT program, I think it's probably pretty cool. Yeah, probably doesn't suck. Uh,
2: Speaking of engineering programs that are probably pretty cool as well, um, Honda sort of – I mean, not Honda, Mazda sort of set everybody on their ear again earlier this week um, with the – not only the announcement, uh, which was last week, of their tie-up with Toyota, but this week they said, oh, by the way – We've got this thing called Skyactiv-X. Uh, it's it's an engine. It's a it's a a gasoline engine that acts like a diesel, which we, we've seen before. It's, it's a homogeneous charge comp- uh, compression ignition. Um, but uh, apparently, Mazda says they've they've solved the the looming problems with those those engines because they're not the first ones to try. They apparently seem to be the first ones that are successful enough to to actually bring this to commercial production.
3: Yeah, well, you know they've they announced earlier this week that they're going to launch the SkyActiv-X engine, which is you know the first, assuming nobody else comes out with something sooner, um, will be uh, the first production HCCI engine um, to you know to to hit the streets, and you know I back in, uh, you know, 2007, 2008, um, you know, there were a bunch of companies working on HCCI. Uh, and you know, there's, there's still, you know, some of them are still working on it. Um, you know, I remember it, in fact, it was 10 years ago this month, uh, at a GM, uh, powertrain event at the proving grounds. I was there. Um, and they had a couple of prototype, uh, Saturn auras right. with, uh, with HCCI engines. in them. you know, I, I wrote up that, I had a chance to drive one and, um, you know, wrote up a detailed tech analysis, which we'll link to, uh, and, uh, for at Autoblog green back in those days. And then a couple of years later I had another. you know, they had a, a newer generation of that and I had a chance to drive it again. You know, it was definitely improved, but you know, there were, there were always issues, you know, so just as a, a little primer, you know, uh, you know, traditionally, you know, we've had two types of piston engines in cars. You've had auto cycle, Gasoline engines, spark ignition engines. That you know. Um, or, or let me go back. Two types of four-stroke engines. Two main <laughs> types of four-stroke engines. So you had spark ignition engines that ran on gasoline or ethanol or you know something else like that. Um, that uh, you know, and after they after you compress the air fuel mixture as the piston goes up on its on its compression stroke. You would uh, use a spark plug to ignite that fuel, and and as it expands, it pushes the piston back down. Then you have compression engine, compression ignition engines, which the most commonly known, ty- commonly common type of that is the diesel engine. And instead of having a spark plug, uh, as uh, they use a higher compression ratio and, and a different type of fuel, so that as the piston goes up and compresses the the air and fuel, um, you know when when you compress a gas like like air, the the temperature goes up, and it was compressed enough that the temperature would rise to a point where the fuel would self ignite. So, that's, that's a diesel engine. And those compression ignition engines tend to produce more torque, and they tend to be more efficient than spark ignition engines. Uh, and so, but they, you know, with diesel fuel, you know, they tend to have issues with emissions of particulates and, and NOx. And so, what, you know, what engineers have been trying to do for a long time now is figure out a way to use compression ignition with gasoline. And, you know, so that's that's where the HCCI comes from. Uh, but because of the nature of the way gasoline burns and everything, you can't really do compression ignition under all circumstances. So what they've had to do is come up with ways, um, you know, to switch back and forth. So, you know, in some modes, some, you know, um, uh, certain light, you know, um, light duty modes, they you know still use spark ignition. Um, and then at other times they switch to compression ignition, and it's that transition, trying to expand the, the you know the operating range of the compression ignition, and trying to make the transition between spark and compression as seamless as possible, that has been the problem, and. Mazda claims to have been able to to lick that, and you know they're claiming that you know they can get about twenty five to thirty percent better fuel efficiency with their um, Skyactiv X engine than a comparable Skyactiv G engine, which is their current generation of direct injected gasoline engines.
2: Yeah, I mean that puts it on par with with diesels in terms of you know getting roughly forty percent efficiency out of it, and you know it, it, like you say it's not the first try um, for automakers to do it so I you know I, I kind of just wonder what's different you know even those delphi cars that you were driving um, and I remember that uh, they I they were mostly well sorted out it's just those those transitional, things you know or part throttle or stuff that where the, mm-hmm. the emissions go way up so like what's what's changed is it faster processors? is it uh you know just a, a better understanding of of uh how things operate because it, it is it's chaos there's so many variables to control and in uh this situation that it just becomes really difficult to actually get it to work Um,
3: At at this point, we don't know. Yeah. Um, You know, they they have not revealed those details yet. And we probably won't know for for a while yet because the engine is not coming till 2019.
2: Yeah. Oh, that—that's true. It's part of their this. The, the funny part to me was the, it's part of the sustainable Zoom Zoom 2030 long-term vision.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which you know also includes you know uh, more electrification in their engines, um, and you know more lightweighting and you know all the all the other usual things. Um, and they'll they'll be launching some battery electric vehicles around 2020, um, adding some hybrids. You know, which they'll you know, presumably be sharing some technology with Toyota, uh, for those, uh, from their, their partnership with Toyota. So we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, it, it's, it's going to, like I said, we'll, some, probably sometime next year, we'll start to learn more. Um, but actually, you know, just last night as, as we're recording this, I uh, had a, uh, call with uh, Dan Nicholson, who's the uh, vice president of propulsion systems engineering at GM, and he confirmed that you know they're still they're still working on HCCI uh, in the lab. You know they've they've got HCCI engines running in vehicles and on the dynos. Um, they just have not they have not gotten it to a point you know gotten it refined enough to a point where they're satisfied with it to put it in production yet. Um, and you know he wouldn't commit to any kind of timeline for when that might happen. But, uh, you know, they'll, they're going to be looking anxiously to see what Mazda has done, you know, see if they can learn any lessons from that, that they might be able to apply to their own engines.
2: Yeah. Well, and if you're GM, um, you're going to operate with a, I think an abundance of caution as you bring, New and innovative engine technology to the market. Just, I mean, the yeah, they've they've gotten burned once or twice. Yeah, on that. a little bit. And you know, the, the flip side of that is though, like you know, it's funny to make jokes even about stuff like like the V eight six four, right? Um, but they tried it. They,
3: yeah, they you know were they, they were they were too early to market, but you know, the, the technology wasn't ready. The supporting technology wasn't ready for, for the V eight six four or for cylinder deactivation as we refer to it today.
2: That works works pretty damn good but the, now. <laughs>
3: but the, yeah, I mean the, the concept was great. Um, and it and it's getting better. And you know, one of the things we're gonna see in engines within the next couple of years and actually um next week or the uh, week after next, I'll uh, be going to uh, a briefing at Delphi, uh, where they're going to be talking more about uh, technology they've they've been uh, developing with a company um, out of uh, Silicon Valley uh, called, uh, not Turo, um, I can't remember the name of the company, but it's called Dynamic Skipfire. And the cylinder deactivation systems that we have in the market today, uh, you know, will shut off, you know, two or three or four cylinders uh, on an engine, you know, but it's always the same cylinders. And uh, so uh, it's... uh, you know, it, it's very you know, it's a it's a more limited scope of variability than than uh, what's possible with dynamic skip fire. The dynamic skip fire system, uh, and I think on a back in uh, January or so, uh, we had an interview I did with um, Jim Zizzleman from Delphi talking a bit about that. But basically, it allows it allows it it it, uh, random, it randomizes the selection of which cylinders are going to be shut off, and it can shut off. know on a v8 engine it can shut off up to six cylinders i think um and you know you know switch back and forth you know between which cylinders are running and which ones are turned off you know to in order to maintain uh smooth operation and um minimize uh you know the emissions and everything else so you know those systems are going to improve fuel efficiency even more and hopefully you know if if, assuming it, it works as planned uh we'll um you know have cleaner emissions and and uh uh, be you know even more reliable
2: yeah well and let's not forget too uh it it, uh, mazda may have a funny name for their their you know long-term vision but i love what they're doing because it's a big picture approach you know they they even they to quote them they say you know it's, it's prioritizing efficiency improvements and measures for cleaner emissions that apply in the real world so instead of just jumping right. to evs and hybrids or uh continuing to just make gains in the engine side of things they're they're really taking a whole systems way of thinking they're you know can we make the car lighter can we reduce friction can we you know can we improve aerodynamics and make the engines more efficient and that that as you know compound gains
3: Right, and at the uh, management briefing seminars last week where I saw Robert Davis speak, you know he, he, he emphasized you know th- and this was before the official announcement came out, but he talked about a lot <coughs> excuse me a lot of the same themes around um, trying to uh, optimize uh, real world efficiency and you know real get real um, Reductions in emissions, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and you know, looking at it from a, a total life cycle, a well-to-wheels perspective, rather than just you know, at the at the dyno when they're doing the certification tests, you know, but looking at the total emissions, um, not only from the vehicle but also from the production process of whatever type of fuel or energy the vehicle using. So they're you know. For you know certain applications in certain regions, you know they feel that they can have a greater impact with more efficient internal combustion engines, and uh, for other vehicles, and you know depending on the region, you know they're going to do electrification, they're going to do hybrids and, and EVs, uh, but you know they want to focus those on the re- you know. Well, at least partly on the regions where they're required by law to do it you know by you know like for example the California Zev mandate but also you know uh, focus on regions where the electricity production is also cleaner so you know they, they don't want to sell EVs uh, in regions where there's a lot of electricity generated from burning coal right. you know but focus on uh, you know natural gas and, and solar and you uh, and wind power, you know, that are going to be cleaner, you know, from a well-to-wheels perspective, and that's that's why you know, one of the things that I neglected to mention last week, but you know, an interesting point that that Davis made during his speech was he actually called for the elimination of um, EV mandates and also. Um, tax incentives for evs and instead to focus on you know focus the mandates on overall life cycle emissions uh you know and you know leave it technology agnostic you know let the manufacturers come up with the cleanest overall approach um you know for every application rather than say you have to do it in this particular way
2: yeah i um i think that was written up in automotive news and i love that uh because it's it's such a a holistic way of doing it and it's it's focused on the results instead of the the tactics and that's i mean that's apparently the way i think so i yeah i mean
3: defi- define the goal that you're trying to reach which is lower greenhouse gas emissions or lower fuel, lower energy consumption and you know let the engineers figure out the best way to get there
2: yeah so uh, Mazda just once again continues to charm the enthusiast and sort of, uh, you know, the the geek in all of us. Um, and then
3: so, march to the beat of their own drummer.
2: Yeah, which is fantastic. Um, so let's talk about Uber. Oh, uh, <laughs> <Wow.
3: laughs> what a downer.
2: <laughs> I don't think it, I mean.
3: Well, actually, in this this particular story, I guess, is a bit, let, a bit less of a downer. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I mean, just in general, talking about Uber is depressing.
2: Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, I'm surprised it actually took this long. So what happened was uh, Travis Kalanick got himself sued by a venture capital company uh, called Benchmark Capital. And they are suing him for fraud, breach of contract and breach of fiduciary duty. Uh, Those are big words. Um, I, I, I guess... The actual stuff he did was he tried to sort of solidify his power and bring and and uh, make some moves uh, behind the scenes so he can come back as CEO eventually. And Benchmark is yeah. not happy with that, right? So um,
3: you know, fiduciary duty you know basically you know means that you know you have as an executive of a company or an officer of a company you have a responsibility sure. to uh, you know lead the company, uh, in a way, you know, in a way that, you know, you maximize returns for your investors, um, and, and do it, you know, within the law, Uh, you know, so, uh, that's, you know, that's what that amounts to. And Benchmark was one of the early VC firms that invested in, um, in Uber. Uh, and in fact, uh, they own a 13% stake, uh, in the company. um, Kalanick himself uh, now only has a 10% stake in the company. So, they own more, more shares of Uber than, than Kalanick does. Um, and you know, they decided that some of the things that Kalanick has been doing you know, have been detrimental to the company. And so, they're, they're suing him for basically being irresponsible in the way he, he ran the company. And even um, you know, being irresponsible in the things he's been doing since he stepped down as the CEO of the company.
2: Yeah, and so uh benchmark to to rectify the situation. Um they they want to get rid of some board seats that were added uh and kick him off the board of directors. <laughs> um, I mean this company just they are they ever going to get it together or maybe I mean, you know, this
3: the it, if Benchmark succeeds in this lawsuit, this could actually be a big step towards the company trying, you know, getting their stuff together. Um, you know, since Kalanick uh, stepped down as CEO uh, a couple of months ago, you know, the, the company's been trying to find a new CEO so far without success. I mean, there's been speculation about all kinds of uh, potential uh, people to take it over. I mean, they were looking at a number of, of female executives that they were, were hoping. You know, they they wanted to they were hoping to bring in a woman to lead the company. Um, you know, and they there was speculation that uh, they were looking at Sheryl Sandberg, uh, the CEO COO of Facebook. Um, marissa meyer the uh former ceo of yahoo uh and uh, meg whitman who's the current ceo of hp enterprise
2: i mean all of those don't seem like good choices to me just like uh, given the history and and uh, they all seem like very uh image related choices and, and maybe I'm, I'm wrong well on that. i mean you know
3: uh I think you know Marissa Meyer. You know, probably would not have been the best choice. Um, you know, I mean, let, let's face it. You know, she was not particularly successful during her tenure at Yahoo. I think there were a lot of factors to that, though. Uh, yeah, but I mean, you know, she 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 also made you know a fair number of. Mistakes, I think. I mean, she did a lot of, she tried to to do a lot of good things, but you know, a lot of it didn't work out for a wide variety of reasons. Um, Sandberg, you know, has been amazingly successful at Facebook, you know, um, and. You know, in many ways, you know, she she is a big part of the reason why Facebook as a company has been as successful as it has. You know, I mean, she came in, you know, fairly early on, uh, you know, working side by side with uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, you know, and Zuckerberg was still pretty young, you know, as a CEO, pretty inexperienced, and Sandberg had you know, a lot of experience at Google. Uh, before coming to uh, going to Facebook, and you know she's very highly respected. Um, similarly, Meg Whitman, you know, is has been pretty pretty well regarded in the uh, in the technology business. Uh, you know, she previously ran uh, eBay. And now runs uh, HP. You know, she was brought in to try to sort things out after the you know there was a mess you know with previous executives at HP. Oh
2: yeah, Carly Fiorina left that company and um, yes,
3: right. And then you know uh, then there was a bit of a scandal around the, the prior CEO uh, Mark Hurd, uh, who's now at Oracle. But you know, so she's you know Meg Whitman is pretty well regarded. But you know, a couple of weeks ago, Meg Whitman you know posted on Twitter that you know she is not interested in the in the CEO job at at Uber she doesn't want to she doesn't want to leave HP she's happy where she is Um, and she you know publicly took herself out of the running for that position and subsequently you know um, some reports started coming out that one of the reasons why Whitman um, disqualified herself was because uh, Kalanick has been, even though he's no longer the CEO, he's still on the board. He's been interfering with the search process, hoping that he can basically stymie them from hiring anybody else, and and you know have them beg him to come back as CEO. And this is part of you know what Benchmark is suing over because uh, you know there's kind of a, an odd structure uh, on the the Uber board, you know. Um, one you know, uh you know you mentioned you know that they were trying the benchmark wants to eliminate three board seats which
2: were added in two thousand sixteen through maneuvering
3: right you know um Kalinick, you know uh, wanted to have those extra board seats added he wanted to expand the board and you know uh it's it's thought that he wanted to bring in people who were going to be loyal to him right you almost know.
2: like like uh, the idea of packing the court right like so yeah
3: or yeah. you know yeah exactly so uh He, you know, as CEO, you know, one of the seats on the board is reserved for the CEO. And so as CEO, he had a he had an automatic board seat when he resigned as CEO. He he had to give up that board seat. But he was given one of those three board seats that he requested last year. And, um, you know, the other two have never been filled. And uh, supposedly, when, uh, when you know, as part of his resignation letter, uh, he was supposed to uh, rescind, you know, any uh, any involvement uh, in the in the search process, and and also, um, you know. But when when those three board seats were added, part of part of the stipulation was that he would assign who who would get those board seats. And so, you know, when he resigned, he was supposed to give up that right to name those those three board seats. Um, And so benchmark, you know, that's one of the claims in Benchmark's suit. And, uh, you know, there's there's a couple other things that there there's like five total claims, I think, uh, in their suit um oh you know his involvement in the the Waymo lawsuit uh, claiming that right. he knew more about what was going on there uh the the India rape case uh mishandling of uh the the victim's medical records um all of the sexual harassment in the, the corporate culture and also um the the grayball program which was this effort they had to um basically to stymie regulators
2: so all of these are I, I just I feel like Benchmark is completely, you know, within their within reasonable rights. This isn't just a a pissing match between, um, you know, whatever you want to call a visionary founder and now the VC uh, guys who want their payday. No, like these are kind of kind of shady things that have been going on. And there's this there's a string of them. There's a history of them. And then just just. Bad PR, and uh, when you got an asset uh, or a company that you've invested in that that's sitting on a you know seven right now, it's got a valuation of seventy billion dollars. Uh, you don't you don't want that to tumble, you know you don't want that to, to drop to thirty or to fifty because it's you know the the CEO is just a hot mess. So uh, it's a, it's a defensive move to protect their money um and so uh, looking at it from my perspective uh they're completely within their rights in terms of you know making sure that their their investment isn't really like sabotaged uh that's that's why you have boards that's why you have uh sort of st- structures like this to to keep those elements in check
3: yeah I, I i totally agree um you know and you know even even more so you know i think Given everything that's happened, you know, I think I don't I don't think it's wise to keep Kalanick on the board, you know, to allow him to continue to have any kind of involvement in the company. You know, uh, you know, he I think he was in many ways a a really terrible leader for the company. You know, in in some respects, you know, the company was as successful as it was because he he pushed so hard. But, you know, I think, you know, I think he probably did a lot more damage than good to to the company and its reputation and I think you know it would be it would be best for uber for Kanick to be completely separated in, in every way from the company
2: yeah and that's I can understand that's that's a tough uh, thing to swallow when you've when you've built this thing and it you know you're really great at some parts of it but the stuff that I've seen uber be not great at are really what's going to Um let it be successful, because uh, you know, it's. Uh, we've talked about this too. It's almost like they only have a certain window before things shift right up from under them, um, and mobility looks different. Uh,
3: and, and and you know that's that's already starting to happen. You know, and I've 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 talked about this and written about this before. You know that I think you know over the. Medium to long term, you know, companies like Uber and Lyft are not going to survive as standalone companies. Um, they're, they are not going to be the ones to lead the transformation to autonomous mobility services, because, you know, they're, you know, if they have to start either building or buying vehicles and maintaining those vehicles and managing those vehicles i you know i don't you know they are the cost is just going to be horrendously high and it, it's not going to make sense for them as comp, you know standalone companies to to do that and you know a prime example of that came this week you know with the reports that um, Uber was uh, shutting down its leasing program that it had for drivers' yeah. vehicle leasing program, because yeah. they ended up losing way more money than they anticipated um, on this program. You know, and what they were doing was a, a program similar to what uh, GM has with Lyft, uh, with the Express Drive program, where. They, um, you know, they were leasing, you know, new vehicles to drivers that wanted to use them on the Uber platform, and you know, the lease price, you know, included uh, insurance and maintenance on those vehicles, uh, and then the, the the payments for the the lease, you know, would just be taken directly out of the driver's pay uh yeah and you know in in general you know i think that's actually you know for you know a ride hailing company that's it's actually a good idea to do that when you when you especially given the nature of you know the the people that are are driving you know for the company it's often younger drivers or you know people that are you know lower income. And, you know, they, they, they may not have the financial wherewithal to buy or lease a new vehicle on their own. So, you know, to set up a program, you know, where they can get affordable, you know, get a new vehicle that's, you know, going to be appealing, you know, to drive, you know, in this kind of business, you know, as a ride hailing business at an affordable price point, you know, I think, you know, it, it benefits the drivers and, you know, Theoretically, benefits the the company operating the service. The problem is, you know, because Uber, you know, doesn't make vehicles. They had to buy the vehicles, buy new vehicles from manufacturers, and finance them and, and set up all the financing. And they borrowed like a billion dollars uh, to do this to fund this program, and they were losing. You know, they anticipated initially that they would be losing about $500 per vehicle, and they've been losing about $9,000 <laughs> per vehicle because the cost of financing for them was way more than uh, what it you know what uh, what they were able to get back you know in terms of payments to to drivers and, and the revenue that the drivers were generating. So uh, it you know they're they're shutting down that program uh, by the end of this year. And if you think about it, you know, going forward, you know, if they have to buy vehicles, autonomous vehicles from somebody, they're going to be in the exact same position. Whereas a car maker that is already manufacturing the vehicles has their own built-in captive finance arm, you know, uh, like most automakers do. You know, they can finance the cost of these vehicles at a much lower cost than a company like Uber can or Lyft. And um, it makes a lot more sense for them to do it because you know. You know any manufacturer that's going to be selling vehicles to an Uber to do a program like that, they're going to be building in a profit margin for themselves on top of that. For you know, if they're doing, if a car maker is doing this internally for their own service, like you know, the the numbers can work out in a very different way. They don't have to build in that profit up front on the cost of the vehicle.
2: Yeah, well, and it I you know so Uber look if they went, borrowed a billion dollars or they they spent a billion dollars on. Cars once more. I mean, they got 70 more t- tries that. Uh, well, <laughs>
3: but, just because their market valuation no, is 70 billion doesn't, you know, that's not how much you right. know, they've it's, only got a, a few billion in the bank.
2: It's not the cash they're sitting on. But the, the uh, it, yeah, I mean, the whole operation seems to bleed money. You know, I've, I've gotten asked about this just in passing, you know, well, what do you think about Uber? great ideas uh great sort of innovative thinking um some of the stuff is going to work and be viable some of it right now only works because there's a lot of money floating around and you know they're they're subsidizing every ride for the most part the prices are going to have to rise to make that sustainable without being propped up and you know then you're back to what a taxi ride costs, you know, like the, right now it's sort of artificially inexpensive. Um, it's very popular. It's easy to use. The technology is, is one thing. The, the actual cost I think is, is artificially low and that's going to bite at some point.
3: Right. And that's, that's why Uber, you know, lost $3 billion last year.
2: Yeah. I don't, I, you know, if, I don't know what CEO is going to take a look at that and go, I don't think that's a, Sandwich I want to take a bite at <laughs> you know, right. like, uh, I can I can See that being part of the calculus too Because the CEO wants to they want to have Success um, They don't they don't want to and, and you know There are CEOs that are turnaround well, for,
3: Fortunately the fortunately the modern You know financial markets don't seem to Really give a damn about success you know They're <laughs> they're more interested in potential Growth than Man, you know than, than actual Successful companies
2: I wish I could fail Upward like that I really do Huh <laughs> <sighs> all right um well if we're going to talk about failure we should take some questions okay <laughs> um and we had uh we had a couple let me just switch tabs here and i will I will bring up the first one we had one uh from twitter that was uh we, we put the call out and so our our listener i'm gonna mangle the name but it's twitter so it is what you want it to be anyway uh surter uh via twitter uh asked um i think just sort of our opinion of a mazda version of the the upcoming toyota supra bmw z4 uh with a wankel engine i hmm. yes all of the wankles all of the time <laughs> yeah why not i love those I, it's such a, it's a cool engine it's it
3: i i i don't expect it to become a reality but i would love it if it did
2: it would be so awesome i honestly i really want a sedan version of the miata i like that platform give it a little stretch in the wheelbase uh it doesn't even have to be like a a four-door just make it a two-door but just that that car as a sedan would be fascinating yeah that, that, that,
3: that could be fun i could go for that
2: yeah a uh, little more useful yes you'd give up a little bit dynamically but you know same same basic width maybe a little bit more height and you know a little extra length and i don't know i just liked it um so we have a uh another question that came in from uh the actual site somebody left a comment so i apologize we're just getting around to this now um it's been there a while about five episodes late on it but uh, amber via the site comments said uh hey i have a dilemma coming up in january um, for years i've had vw gtis uh every version since the mark 4 um loved the hell out of them but in january uh amber's lease is up on a mark 7 and uh with it bad timing in the model switch and the emissions debacle uh so amber is thinking of departing from vw uh additionally um the fact that uh she thinks vw is behind the times with tech and their terrible terrible packaging of upgrades so amber would like to explore something new uh still loves hatchbacks uh a greyhound dog that needs to fit into the equation so something that has a hatch uh, including small or medium-sized suvs and uh yeah so let's see the vehicles- well, I, w- I
3: would i would definitely recommend uh taking a look at the uh, um kia forte 5 sx uh or or the new uh, hyundai elantra gt
2: uh, the uh gt's yeah. been getting i haven't driven one yet but it's been getting a lot yeah, of really positive I'll, comments
3: I'll, I'll they're doing a, a regional drive here in a, uh next week i think uh, or week after week after uh, so i'll have a chance to drive that one um, but uh, you know bo- both of them have the same the same powertrain it's um Hyundai Kia uh, 1.6 liter turbo um, 201 horsepower um, it's available with uh, six-speed manual or with a seven-speed uh, DSG or uh, DCT uh, dual clutch transmission uh, which is a it's a fabulous transmission the the one that Hyundai has built is really good really smooth quick shifting um, the the six-speed manual version is fantastic as well you know uh, really uh, slick shifting transmission I would definitely take a look at one of those um you know they're they're both good looking vehicles that you know they've each got you know kind of their own unique look um you know they're they're roomy they're fun to drive
2: yeah um, and they're you
3: know, also good dynamics
2: yeah um those are both going to fit comfortably under her price cap of uh, 35k
3: oh yeah i mean you you'll be able you can get you can get into either one of those you know um, low to mid-20s uh yeah. so that's you know I think I think those are those are an excellent choice. Um, you know Mazda three is great, um, but even the you know the two point five is not going to be quite as uh, sprightly as what you can get with one of the turbos uh, from from the Koreans or yeah. from a GTI.
2: I mean I really I really liked the Mazda three, but compared to the GTI, it felt I don't want to say it felt delicate, but it it just didn't have that seriousness of purpose about it that a gti has and maybe it's because you know we're comparing mazda 3 versus gti um it might be a little different you know three versus straight golf but um it's still it's a great car to to drive so you, you should definitely try it uh and and you know one of our questions is because could, could i live with a mazda 3 after so many gtis uh, you'll notice the power difference, uh, but there are things about the Mazda 3 that are very nice. Uh,
3: oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the interior is great. Yeah. Um, the driving dynamics are, are fantastic. Uh, and and the, the latest version, the 2017 models, have uh, a torque vectoring system in there uh, that uh, apparently works really well. I haven't had a chance to drive a 17 yet with that system, but, um, you yeah, know, it's, it's a fantastic car. Um, I would also... Um,
2: not say focus, don't say
3: focus. No, I I was, I I was not, I was actually not going to recommend that one. Uh, I was going to recommend the Honda civic, uh, the civic hatchback, Uh, you know, that it's a little bit down on power compared to your GTI, but you know, that the one five turbo is a really torquey little engine. Unfortunately, Honda has opted not to do, uh, an SI hatchback, which I think would have been a, a perfect choice for you. Um, but you know, even the base model, you know, at 174 horsepower, it's got lots of torque. You know, it's a strong feeling engine. I would definitely take one of those out for a test drive and and see what you think. Um, the sp- the six speed manual version is is fantastic. It's ver- yeah, it's and, very good. And even the CVT is nice. I mean, you know, we we have a you know, my wife and I have a a Civic Hatch with a CVT, um, and it's it's a great option as well. Uh, so you know, those those are the ones I would take a look at.
2: I mean. <laughs> there's not necessarily a a great amount of choice for a a hatch with some, some sporting intentions you could, you know, and the, the mention of crossovers was made too. So you could go, uh, there's a new Tiguan, that's coming out that's a little longer. yeah i think
3: I, I think i think she was leaning away from volkswagen no i
2: know um um <laughs> that, so you know i mean if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna
3: consider you know crossovers um then you know i would take a look at the cx-5 the Mazda cx-5 yeah.
2: i was gonna say um, um or the crb the sole turbo which is not exactly a crossover but it's not exactly a hatchback it's a thing
3: yeah you know? but it but it's a good thing you know and you know it's got Got lots of room for a dog, yeah. You know, even for a big dog, uh, got decent performance. It's fun to drive. It's not as refined,
2: yeah. It's not as refined as the GTI, but
3: no. But a few, a few cars are at that price point, right?
2: It's still, it's. I think its rough edges are entertaining rough edges. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about what, what do you feel about recommending a mini? Because you could get into a mini. <laughs> For uh, it's especially uh, the CPO Mini for thirty five k. I don't know because like, for me there is nothing besides. I mean, you a, know, I think I think
3: for, for what she's looking for, probably you know, you'd probably want to go for a Countryman. Yeah. Um. because you know, I think the you know the the hard to, the Mini hard tops would probably be on the small side. Maybe a Clubman. Uh, but yeah, you know, Clubman you're, would you're probably it. looking You're probably looking at a countryman though You know for to accommodate a greyhound Comfortably yeah that's true um, It's worth you know it's worth taking a look uh, yeah. You know I mean they They haven't always had many hasn't Always had the greatest reliability record uh, Which is I mean that's the main reason I hesitate
2: right well, um, and, and I Feel but like they
3: are fun to drive
2: yeah If it's even the so Now that they've rejiggered their engines Even the three-cylinder turbo in the just the cooper trims is good Mm -hmm. uh and i don't honestly i don't know off the top of my head if a countryman has that or if it's still carrying on with the legacy engines um
3: um well they they have the new they have a second generation countryman now okay which i believe has the one five um three-cylinder turbo
2: so that's how much i've paid attention to mini lately (laughs) um but you know for me mini starts at cooper s yeah and all any cooper s trim of any model is going to be pretty fun and have uh you know pleasing power and decent handling it's, they can get a little too self amused and that's so that's sort of where i hesitate where i'm like okay it's is is just fashion statement
3: more yeah, than I everything. mean, you know the, you know the having the big central dial and and everything, you yeah. know, it's, it is kind of funky, you know. So, it, yeah, I mean, it's worth taking a look at, you know, see what you can find in a in a CPO model, um, you know, because I think a, a new one is probably going to be, you know, bumping up against that uh, that price ceiling that you're looking at. Um, what else? Um, yeah, I think I think that's that's I enough choices. I think we
2: we have covered the bases yeah rather well um and i don't know if this question came in for just uh just me um via twitter or uh both of us for the show but i'm going to ask it on the show anyway um so dennis asks me he says he's starting a craptastic auto youtube channel good good for you uh what crappy car should be my first uh his first he you know, to make a video out of. And I asked, uh, does it need to be, uh, current or old? And he says, it doesn't matter. So, um, my feedback was, I, I I mean, if you're
3: going to, if you're going to go for, you know, for crap, then you might as well go all the way and get a Yugo.
2: Right. Well, so see if if you
3: can find one that hasn't, you know, completely decomposed yet.
2: I don't feel that the Yugo was crap. I feel that the Yugo was a victim of circumstances. Um, now the Vega, on the other hand, the Vega was crap. <laughs> it's wonderful engineering, such garbage execution. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I, told him like on you know the modern end of things, I hated the uh, Scion XB. So,
3: the second generation or the first or uh, both?
2: Second. The first was fun. Yeah. First, yeah. first was pure. The second was just no. It, they fixed everything that people complained about, and by doing that, they made it awful.
3: <laughs> if if you're gonna go for bad '70s cars, you should really consider a Pinto
2: as well. Uh, yeah, the Pinto was pretty awful. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's a there's a lot. Right. There's you know, mo,
3: mo, most cars built in the 1970s, especially <laughs> the first half of the 70s, <laughs> I think would really qualify pretty well for this. You know. Yeah. Yeah for this category. I mean you'd, you'd be you'd be hard pressed to go wrong with just about anything built in that era.
2: I, what amazes me is that that was that was just normal. That that was accepted. It was good.
3: It just well it was it was, it was what it was. I mean it was it was what you had to choose from.
2: Yeah, I get I mean you unless know, you wanted to be a I communist, don't, I don't
3: know that I would say, I don't know that I would say that anybody was particularly satisfied with the options, but you know, they they were what they were. And, you know, uh, w- you know, unless you were going to go for, you know, one of the, you know, go for like a Mercedes Benz or something like that. You know, there there wasn't a whole lot of options. I mean, everything was really pretty bad.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so, I mean, you've got a fertile decade to mine. Um, so
3: so maybe maybe, you know, the, the channel should just be called the Glamrock era cars. Um channel.
2: You could call it Ziggy Car Dust. (laughs) There you go. You're welcome. Um (laughs) perfect. (laughs) But if you you know, if you wanted a more modern car, that's the thing. Like I I I have a little bit more because we can always sort of poke fun at the past. Um a more modern car. That's that's why I said that the XB smart. Yeah, oh smart smart's a really good one. Smart it was not good here in the US. I don't know what it it seems like it was better in Europe um with the different transmission and stuff but
3: just not good here. The uh, first generation Kia Sportage was a very bad car.
2: Uh that was like the late 90s. Yeah. The, that was before yeah. they got bought. That was that was when they were sort of like a Mazda's subsidiary.
3: Uh, more like a licensee they they weren't really a subsidiary I don't know if Mazda actually had an equity stake
2: Oh that's I think true Think Florida at one
3: point had an equity stake
2: Well cuz Kia made the expire I uh, the aspire
3: <laughs> <laughs> which almost caused the company to expire
2: Yeah um so they sort of they sort of learned Stamping and assembly because of Ford and Mazda, right? Because I think they yeah. built the they built the one twenty one as well for a while. Yeah, I mean,
3: well, I mean the the original Festiva and um, whatever the the Kia branded version of that that was sold overseas was a one twenty one. Right. And then the the Aspire was built off the next generation, derived from the next generation one twenty one.
2: Did you uh, know? Did you know that the Festiva is like a cult car? There are people who who hoard multiple version, like multiple uh, cars, and just love them. I I had not. I idea. was not aware of that. It, it's it's but, weird. But but but
3: speaking of, of uh, mules, you know, which we talked about earlier <laughs> in the show. One, one more fascinating uh, development: mule. <laughs> the the mule the. The development mules for that first generation sportage uh were actually based on the festiva you know they imagine a festiva body shell you know jacked up onto a a a tiny a tiny suv frame yes they had festiva body shells on those early generation the first generation uh sportage development mules oh
2: now i want one because that sounds kind of badass yeah
3: <laughs> unfortunately uh, by the time they got to production they were just bad
2: yeah and well they had a mazda engine tour uh yeah uh, uh, uh it was a, ver- well, it was the, a mazda festiva, engine design
3: the festiva did i don't think the sportage was a mazda derived engine i think that was an internally designed engine
2: oh I remember but those when they first the, the, came. The thing, the thing that struck
3: me about those Festivas or the, the Sportages, you know, I had a chance to drive one on the test track, you know, as, uh, as an engineer um, with a former employer, um, and it was a pretty scary vehicle to drive. Did you roll it? I did not roll it. I somehow I managed to get through my. You know, 17-year career developing slip control systems, and never actually rolled a vehicle all the way over. I came very close on several occasions, but never actually put one on its roof.
2: Well, Jesus, I did that within the first two and a half months of driving. I've rolled a car.
3: <laughs> yeah, I've, I've somehow managed to get through. You know, so far, you know, 30 plus years with without rolling anything. It's for like <laughs> crumpled a few cars, but you know, yeah. I've never rolled one.
2: Uh oh. Well, good. I think we gave him a, a plenty of, of food for thought for, yeah. for his his cards. We even gave my show name, so I, I would like some credit. Um, but anyway, all right, we got one one more
3: segment for the show for this week, uh, which is a conversation we had yesterday.
2: Yeah, with uh, uh, Colin Sultan of Three M.
3: Yeah, and uh, 3M is doing some very interesting stuff, you know, around the automated and connected car space. Um, you know, 3M is not not a brand name you typically think of, you know, with um, in, in in terms of high technology automobiles, but um, you know they they do a lot of things, you know, that make driving possible yeah you know, uh, to paraphrase the old uh, was it b a s f uh right. tagline you know they 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 don't make the stuff you buy, but they make the stuff that makes the stuff you buy, something like that
2: yeah, i think that's
3: right yeah I think BASF um, or, either way right so yeah, so three m does a lot of interesting stuff and we had a we had an interesting chat with Colin yesterday uh so drop that in here
2: all right, well, let's get started so um we're speaking with with Colin Sultan. You are global manager with 3M and we're talking about the Connected Roads division.
4: I manage the 3M Connected Roads business. Um, I work for the transportation safety division uh, and our division uh, is uh, all about safety and mobility and bringing home families safely.
2: All right. Um, and so 3M is no stranger to road safety. I mean, I spent a uh, summer making road signs that v- we made very liberal use of uh, Scotch light reflective plastic, for example. Um, but with connected roads, it seems like you're, you're looking at active technology, and you've, you've partnered with um, the Michigan Department of Transportation on a stretch of I-75 uh, to test ed- advanced technology. Uh, you know, why don't you set us up a little bit and sort of explain... What's going on with that? Uh, th- uh,
4: this is correct. So, um, for 75 years, uh, 3M Transportation Safety has been uh, innovating and uh, developing technologies for transportation safety, mostly around human vision and how our eyes. Uh, can see retroreflective signs and pavement markings, for example. And um, as uh, these mega trends around urbanization, around government funding, around uh, connected and uh, road safety continue to evolve. Uh, It's been important to us to be able to innovate around the areas uh, within these mega trends, especially around automated and connected vehicles. And so uh, in uh, this evolution of these vehicles, uh, they're using uh, sensors within those vehicles, cameras, LiDAR, uh, ultrasonic, radar, and it's, uh, it's our belief and it's uh, our strategy to be able to enable Intelligent transportation uh, to continue to happen within infrastructure through enabling these systems within the vehicles to uh, create greater safety through redundancies, for example uh, to be able to see uh, signs to be able to see materials that we embed into signs, which is one of the core businesses in in three m as well as pavement markings, which is another core uh, Uh, manufacturing uh, area that we have expertise in uh, so that these vehicles can actually see uh, pavement markings, for example, when a GPS system may not work or see uh, pavement markings when there's snow uh, on top of uh, the lines or sleet or fog, for example. And so it's our uh, belief uh, that we can develop uh, and and we are developing technologies to be able to allow these vehicles uh, to sense uh, different uh, materials and technologies that we have
3: yeah I mean localization of, of automated vehicles you know allowing the enabling the vehicles to be able to determine where they are in physical space uh, is a crucial part of of automation so what sorts of things is 3M doing? You, know, you mentioned, uh, you know, being able to figure out where the vehicle is in the lane, uh, even when it's covered with snow. How, how would you do that? I mean, what, what sorts of technologies would you implement to do that?
4: Well, uh, there's one thing that we've learned through working with the ecosystem, uh, or our ecosystem and our partners, is that uh, GPS is uh, does not always work and is not always as accurate as uh, as needed uh, to be able to navigate a vehicle. So we believe. Uh, that there's redundancies in the infrastructure that we have expertise on uh, over the 78 years. And so um, imagine a sign uh, that would be able to be seen uh, by a human and meet the uh, MUTCD uh, guidelines. uh, So it looks like a stop sign. It's red. A human would see it as they would see it today. But imagine being able to embed technologies into that sign that a camera would be able to see in a different spectrum of light, for example, and be able to provide information uh, to the driver and or the vehicle, as well as, uh, to your question, uh, GPS, uh, GIS location, longitude and latitude, and be able to help that vehicle uh, with redundancies when a GPS system may not work. And some examples of those locations would be in an urban canyon in a city, in a tunnel, uh, out in the country. Uh, there's, uh, you know, many different examples of uh, where we could help uh, provide that vehicle uh, the G.I.S. location uh, to be able to, you know, kind of uh, certify or give credibility that the vehicle is where the vehicle uh, says it is. But also, you know, when those uh, GPS systems may not be working, uh, then uh, to help keep that vehicle on the road, uh, you continue to need pavement markings uh, so that those vehicles will sense uh, a line with the cameras and uh, keep that uh, vehicle on the road. We've heard that from uh, different partners as well as uh you know different companies who are testing different technologies uh, mostly around GPS system with those different sensors in the vehicles as well as uh uh automobile OEMs uh, who are testing different technologies as well so um, really uh, the key word here is around redundancies and how, uh, when one system is not working, uh, there's other systems that will uh, be able to to help uh, fall back on in most in all different types of situations.
3: So, for example, um, you know, Mobileye and, and Bosch uh, both have uh, programs with um, with uh, car makers and with map makers to take sensor data that they collect um, about landmarks uh, as the vehicle drives down the road, you know, fixed landmarks, and get the position of those those landmarks uh, and feed it back into a data center, aggregate it, and then incorporate it into high-definition maps, So that, and then feed that back to the vehicle fleet so that that, that information can be used uh, by the vehicles to, locally to triangulate, where you know, to figure out their position in space. Is that the sort of thing you're talking about, um, or is it something even beyond that?
4: Yeah, that's one example, and we're actually involved in uh, some of that work as well. Um but we can also um, provide through uh, infrastructure that's already out on the road today and retrofitting and or fabricating future signs, we can actually provide the exact location, GIS, longitude and latitude, through infrastructure that, that we have available through retroreflective signs uh, and or other materials. That's just one example of doing this but yes uh there's other examples of triangulating through um different infrastructure bridges uh signs uh their their uh their location through gps and 3d mapping so this this is slightly different
3: okay so um talking about signs uh there was an interesting report that just came up uh, in the past week of some researchers um testing out uh, one particular machine learning vision algorithm. Um, and they were able to fool the system into misreading some stop signs. They, they put some strategically placed uh, pieces of white and black tape on a stop sign and the stop sign or the, the, the machine vision algorithm misread that instead of seeing it as a stop sign, it saw it as a 45 mile per hour speed limit sign. And, um, is there, you know, are there some of the things that you're doing, things that could help uh, mitigate that, uh, you know, to to help uh, to try to help guarantee that uh, the signs get read properly, and you know, maybe perhaps uh, minimize the chances of uh, of having an impact from that sort of vandalism if someone were, were to tamper with signs in that way. Uh,
4: this is a discussion that we have often, and uh, the the answer to your question is yes. Um, we, I read that article, um, and that's being done through optical character recognition through cameras, and we believe some of these technologies that uh, I discussed with you earlier, uh, with be able to give the credibility of the read to the vehicle, um, we would be able to help uh, through the algorithm be able to tell that vehicle that it is reading uh, what it is reading um, in this embedded technology that we have through films and or inks on signs. Um, So it uh, it would read a certain code that we would embed and we would give it the credibility of that read rate to be able to prevent some of the cybersecurity uh, areas that you're discussing. These are all, all these discussions are all concepts and testing, Uh, so they're not commercially available at this point, Um, but they're areas that we're testing, as you mentioned earlier, around Michigan DOT, uh, corridors between Detroit and Ann Arbor, and testing that we're doing uh, in other states uh, around the United States.
3: So, just as an example of you know, you mentioned codes embedded in the in the sign, would that be something analogous to uh, like the the micro dots that are generated by certain printers, some types of printers uh, that are used to that can be used to identify um, exactly which printer, which piece of hardware generated a particular printout? Is that the sort of thing? Like,
4: um, I think it would be slightly different, um, I, you know, I'd rather not get into the specific <laughs> technology because we're, we're, we're testing uh, different technologies and different ways to do it. Um, but, but uh, you know, there's, there's several different ways that we can have that vehicle be able to machine read a sign, be able to give it instant information and or connectivity to a database that so we can give it further information. Okay, so fair enough. Go ahead. It's it really, really just around the technology of a machine being able to redesign is, is you know, really what we're looking at at this point.
2: Well, and, and to pick up on the theme of um, redundancy, which, you know, is it's something that you keep coming back to, um, part of the project that you've got going on with MDOT is, it involves uh, DSRC, the Digital Short-Range Communication. Um, you know, what... How far away are we from that, uh, and and what needs to be done to the existing infrastructure to, to work w- with that technology? Uh,
4: and this is a great question, and I'm not sure that I'm going to totally be able to answer uh, the question because this is a discussion that the uh, world is having at this point. I think there's many different... Different discussions around this, whether uh, DSRC will be the end-all technology and/or um, cellular 5G uh, technology at some point with a uh, greater latency to be able to, uh, you know, have quicker. Uh, response time so really uh, uh, the way that we're going at this is more around uh, what type of messaging uh, mostly for the 3m the 3m business we're more interested in obviously vehicle to infrastructure as opposed to vehicle to vehicle and so it's important for us uh, to basically understand how that messaging will be done Um, whether it be in cellular or in DSRC. It's not that important to us uh, which one is chosen at the end. It's more important to us to make sure that the messaging is uh, safe and secure uh, and and helps with the greater safety and mobility for the future. We are involved in DSRC specifically around test tools. Um, 3M does uh, manufacture a test tool that's used by academia, used by uh, government agencies to test the standard and the messaging uh, that has been uh, put forth already uh, around that, uh, uh, DSRC dedicated short range communication.
3: But you're not, 3M isn't, you're not looking at getting into, uh, manufacturing roadside, uh, units, uh, either DSRC or 5G, uh, at this stage.
4: Um, I won't say we are or we're not, but but I will say that we have different ideas on more of, like I mentioned earlier, uh, communications between vehicles and infrastructures. and if if uh, if we need to be involved in uh, roadside units, uh, we will be involved in roadside units
3: so what what sorts of messages are being uh, transmitted?
4: uh on this the system that you're testing now uh with m dot um so the most of the testing that was done uh through m dot was around messaging vehicle to vehicle and it was done through platooning uh, so most of that the the test the test tool that we had in that uh, corridor was really making sure that that messaging that was happening as they were testing platooning uh, on the corridor was uh, the right messaging, and we were logging it and providing that back to uh, the companies that were creating the systems for that platooning. There was more testing to the standard
2: okay uh, you know there 's been a lot of talk about the future of, of mobility and, and autonomous cars, uh, I think it, it makes great headlines. It uh, makes for intriguing news stories, especially with the gee whiz uh, nature of it. We're certainly uh, intrigued and encouraged. Um, but what I've found too, is when you start to implement technology uh, and not necessarily specific to the Connected Roads program, but I'd, I'd love to hear your take on it. Um, you know, For example, here in Massachusetts, our commuter rail operator is is in between this rock and a hard place um, they want to promote usage of the commuter rail uh, to do that they need to offer certain amenities one of them you know is is uh, better Wi-fi coverage well to make that work they have to put up wi-fi towers uh, along the the tracks uh, some communities have have pushed back on that uh, you know saying that it's going to harm the character of the town which has temporarily stalled the project so uh, as technology uh, sort of progresses uh, to, the the way to make all of this stuff possible to make you know the roads of the future um, do you anticipate any pushback? Are you ready for it? Uh, have you gotten any uh, already
4: we you know we believe uh... Our message uh, around 3M Connected Roads is mostly around how we can help enable uh, infrastructure. I believe it's very sexy to talk about automated and connected vehicles. I think the uh, press uh, does like to pick up on a lot of stories around the actual vehicles and the systems in those vehicles and them being on the roads in a very short period of time. Um, you know, it's our belief that the infrastructure isn't quite ready. Uh, for that. Um, We believe that uh, there's not enough redundancies as we mentioned earlier to be able to safely navigate those vehicles. I think um, there's lots of discussions around uh, what you're referring to around public transportation, around uh, intelligent transportation systems and how to uh, get people to locations quicker and how to uh, Renavigate people uh, in congested areas and move them to different roads to be able to decongest uh, certain uh, areas within cities. As we see, you know, greater urbanization and people moving to the cities. So, you know, I. You know, our, our you know at 3M, you know, we're really interested again back to the safety and mobility and helping to consult uh, uh, DOTS and government on how to begin to be ready for these automated vehicles, for example, on the roadways and, and what what types of technologies uh, will help create these redundancies to keep people safe and bring them home uh, to their families
3: the only issue with that is, you know, who's going to pay for all this, you know, we, we have a hard enough time getting, uh, people willing to, you know, Americans be willing to pay taxes just to support, you know, the most basic infrastructure, you know, getting funding, you know, just to keep our bridges from falling down and our, our roads from crumbling, uh, is, has become increasingly difficult over the years. So, you know, if we have to, um, significantly upgrade our infrastructure to support automated and connected vehicles. How, how's that gonna happen?
4: And, and I absolutely agree with you. And the perspective from 3M is, is really around cost neutral types of technologies that can be able to be used to enable the safety. Um, so when you start to talk more about roadside units and DSRC, uh, there is the belief uh, that there's added cost, um, you know there there will also be added safety uh by having some of these technologies but um really the areas Uh, Where we're involved in, uh, we're much more interested in how we can embed uh, different technologies into current infrastructure, make that current infrastructure better uh, as it evolves. Have the vehicles be able to sense these technologies in those inclement weather conditions, and do it all at a cost neutral. Because we are aware, uh, you know, we we deal with the DOT every day, and we know that uh, there's budget constraints, and uh, you know, we, we. we know uh, that it, it will be very difficult to add uh, cost to some of these technologies, even with the fact that we're trying to create greater safety for the taxpayers who are out there.
2: Uh, and you know, I'm curious about at the end of it what is a successful outcome? Uh, look like to you for this I guess, this current project that you're running. Uh, certainly, the successful outcome can mean a lot of things as we get into the future, but.
4: Uh, you know, our our mission, again, as I mentioned earlier, is to get families home safely. Um, we subscribe and uh, are affiliated with different uh, towards zero fatalities, uh, towards zero deaths. There's different groups. Um, we're working with the DOTs uh, to help them drive towards uh, zero fatalities. So when we measure uh, different safety technologies and different infrastructure that we're trying to help provide um, we're looking at how we can drive towards that uh, zero fatality and and looking and trying to measure the data to, to to uh you know drive towards that point so that everybody gets home safely
2: okay uh well great um i think my my final question and sam you can jump in if you've got anything afterward but uh I'm just curious what gets you most excited uh, th- about uh, the project that you're working on.
4: I believe this is uh, this has been a very fun uh, experience for me in my career um this is uh, this is clearly a mega trend, uh, automated and connected vehicles and and I believe uh, that uh, through these technologies at three m um, we can help bring people home safely. We can add uh, value to uh, taxpayers and DOTs who are trying to protect those people on the roads. and, and uh, So it gets me very excited, it's, very, it's a very exciting uh, industry right now uh, as we mentioned earlier around uh, the sexiness of uh, automated and connected vehicles and we believe that we can help enable those vehicles uh, on the roads.
2: Great. Thanks very much. Uh, I mean, I am satisfied. Uh, I learned stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, is there anything else you wanted to add Sam or are we
3: No, just that, you know, I mean, in, in my daily role as a, as an analyst, uh, covering the connected and autonomous vehicle space, <clears throat> you know, there's, there's a, a, a lot of fascinating things going on and there's, I think there's huge potential for some real societal benefits from this technology. Um, you know but it's gonna be crucial that we we do it the right way you know we're we're careful about how we how we do it to make the system as robust as possible so that it does meet you know um, consumer expectations because I think there's a there's the risk you know with with some of the companies that are involved in this you know that they don't take the safety aspect really as seriously as as perhaps they should you know and and don't really understand you know how. Um, what the consequences of doing things wrong are, uh, you know, I think the auto industry, you know, and, and its supplier base are certainly not perfect. You know, they've made plenty of mistakes, but, you know, I think they, they've, underst- they've come to understand over the years, you know, that you have to test stuff a lot more carefully and, and you have to really take into account the, the consequences of, of failure, um, which, you know, in this case, you know, can be life or death, as opposed to, you know, just having a, a an app crash on your phone. Uh, and so it's great to see companies like 3M really taking a look at, you know, some of the some of the things that don't get thought about enough, I think, by a lot of the people involved in the space.
2: Well, great. So uh, Colin Sultan from 3M, thanks very much for talking to us at Wheel Bearings about uh, connected roads. Any final parting words? Yes,
4: thanks. (laughs) I I appreciate the time. I I agree with the last comment, and (laughs) I uh, believe that safety uh, is at the utmost importance uh, when we start talking about uh, automated and connected vehicles and the testing that's being done today.
2: Good. Well, thanks for all your, your hard work. I look forward to uh, reaping the benefit of, of the research and, and development uh, in the future as a driver.
4: Thank you for your time.
2: So many thanks to our uh, old Autoblog colleague, Alex Nunez, for uh, helping us set that up with with Colin um, from 3M. I, I had no idea uh, that they could sort of encode information into a road sign by um, you know, having it reflects other light frequencies that are undetectable by the the human eye that blew my mind. I was like, well, well, yes, it's obvious, but also I would never have thought of that.
3: Yeah. No, they're, they're doing some interesting stuff. And, you know, I've had some other conversations with 3M. You know, they're they're also working on um, things like the coatings for um, the sensor windows on automated vehicles. Um, you know, things uh, both, uh, you know, coating them with different colors, you know, so that it blends into the bodywork of the vehicle. Uh, so, you don't have all these obvious windows scattered around the car, but also, um, you know, things to, to try to make uh, try to prevent uh, stuff from sticking to it You know things like salt and slush And, and dust and, and other uh, Substances that can obscure The vision of those sensors So they're, 3M's doing a lot of interesting Stuff and uh, it'll be, I think they'll be playing an important part In the future of automobiles
2: All important stuff yeah. uh, Excellent well I think We have uh, we've com- Successfully come to the close of another Podcast so Um, All right. And we'll we'll talk to you next week. Yeah. Thanks for listening. All right. Bye.